This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm so glad you're here. I have a wonderful interview for you today. Before I talk about what we have for you today, here's a short but important sponsor message. What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being, where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care, not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, but by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash selfwork to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So much research and time and thought goes into romantic love, but what about platonic love, friendship? I've interviewed Marissa Franco today for Self Work, and I loved her new book entitled Platonic. And actually, this interview is one of my favorites. I read her book after I returned from a reunion of my high school best friends, and it was with so much joy that I read her book on the meaning of friendship. This is the way that Marissa reached out to me. I found your podcast when one of my Instagram followers mentioned I should speak on your show. I instantly started listening to older episodes and can't believe I hadn't listened to your show sooner. I love the way you discuss such heavy topics with care and provide meaningful insight into your listeners who might be struggling. I was wondering if it would be of interest to have me, as a friendship expert, come speak on how to make friends as an adult. I think this topic will be fascinating to your listeners, given that over one in three adults have reported being seriously lonely, and this trend has worsened with the pandemic. I immediately got in touch with Marissa, found out she'd been on all kinds of major shows like Good Morning America and The Today Show. I read her book cover to cover, and I have to laugh. I laughed with her during the interview because she talks about the way to make friends and that one of them is you initiate and you compliment, which is exactly what she did to me. What you're about to listen to is our conversation about her book, about friendship, and real, tangible, pragmatic steps to make friends and keep them. This could sound so simple to those of you who might not have any trouble making friends, but many people do really struggle. Certainly, if you're in the second group, this interview and book will be perfect for you, but even those that make friendship more easily will be able to do what I did, sort of glory in the friendships that you have and just stand as a reminder of what you need to do, what you want to do to keep them fresh. 
So in just a minute, we'll listen to the conversation between me and Marissa. But right now, there's one more message from a wonderful sponsor. When life gets busier with what can at times seem overwhelming, you want to have as many coping mechanisms at your fingertips as you can. For me, Ozark Mountain Medicine's CBD products are the best way I've found to soothe my own aching muscles. Instead of only one form of CBD, there are 16 varieties in OMM's products. Simply knowing I can reach for it gives me relief. What's most important is that it works. I've been told at least three times in my lifetime that I needed to be assessed for back surgery. And three times, I've kept walking, getting massage, and steadfastly using this product. You can take it orally in tincture form or a calming salve, which is what I prefer. That's also available. And there are other benefits of taking such a high-quality CBD, including immune support, increased relaxation, reduced anxiety, and improved sleep. So here's Ozark Mountain's fabulous offer for self-work listeners. All you have to do is use this promo link, ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work and you'll receive 10% off your order. I never suggest a product to you that I haven't used myself, and I reap this one's benefits each and every day. Again, that code is ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash selfwork. Sometimes the best solutions are right under your nose, so try a bit of Ozark Mountain Medicine CBD and see for yourself. So today we're going to talk about Marissa Franco's book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. I'm so glad you're here, and it's my honor to introduce you to Marissa Franco. I want to welcome you to Self Work, Marissa. Thank you so very much. I told you before the interview that actually I spent uh, an entire weekend, which is unusual for me. I don't do a girls' weekend very often, uh, with my high school girlfriends of fifty years now, and some I hadn't seen in thirty years. And then I came home and started reading your book, and the the context and the synergy of that was amazing. I mean, I've already sent them several of the quotes from your book. Oh so. wow. I'm so honored. My favorite was, friends permit us to accept our flaws, to allow them to be a piece of who we are, rather than our scarlet letter. Mm. I loved that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Tell me how you, you know, where you are and how you got the idea for this book. So it was in my young 20s that I was going through a breakup and feeling really bad about it. So... Mm -hmm. I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where we met up, we cooked, we did yoga, we meditated, and it was life-changing for me. I felt like the most healing part was just being around people who love me, who I love every week. And it made me question some of the beliefs I had that had made my grief so bad, which was, you know, romantic love is the only love that makes me worthy. And I only have love in my life if it's romantic. And I began to wonder just because of my experience in that group, why doesn't this love matter? Why do we throw it away? Why Mm -hmm. is there only one love that I think defines me when I have so much love around me? And I felt like there's just this larger cultural issue that we're so lonely and yet we throw away friendship as a form of connection. And we love on such a hierarchy um, that we don't even see friendship for all the beauty that it is. Like, To me, it's gold under our feet that we see as concrete. So I was really motivated. Thank 
you. I was really motivated to write platonic because I wanted to help us level this hierarchy that we place on love and see platonic love as beautiful too. I want to tell the listeners that one of the things about the book that was just riveting for me because it there was huge scope to it, but at the same time, there was a lot of depth and it was very readable. You just tell the story about the group you formed with your with your girlfriends, but you tell several stories about yourself in the book. So that really makes it very easy to read, very palatable. We feel like we're getting to know you at the same time we're reading and learning from you and all the people that you have learned from. You did make the point at the beginning of the book that the research you've looked at is primarily on young Caucasians. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, there was concern on your part about how that might be perceived. You really wanted to make a special point of that. So I, I wanted to make a special yeah. point of it, too. It is an important point to make. Um, you know, I think it, it ends up happening that way in psychology departments because it's convenient, right, mm-hmm. to just poll your mm-hmm. students. So if you're mm-hmm. in a predominantly white institution, that's kind of who ends up being really easy to get to participate in your studies. And I do think you're right that part of it is there's so much less science um, friendship than there is on romance. So, you know, when there's a larger body of literature, there's a higher chance that people break out of this traditional mold of including college students in the studies. So I hope as the friendship research continues to grow, that we will see more inclusion of different groups and really intelligent analyses on how some of these processes will differ across different groups. Well, I want to dig into the actual meat of the book because I love the way you organized it. Um, basically, you talk about six different um, characteristics, or let me see, t- uh, they are actually traits that protect friendship, and they are initiative, vulnerability, authenticity, productive anger, generosity, and affection. I'm going to repeat that because people might be writing it down. Initiative, vulnerability, authenticity, productive anger, generosity, and affection. And I realized, actually, Marissa, your email to me talking about Platonic and talking about your book was so warm And so personal. And first you began talking to me about how much you enjoyed self-work and that whether or not we did an interview, I'd gained a follower. And I thought, she approached me the same (laughs) 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 With affection, with generosity. (laughs) Thank you. And I thought, oh, because I was like, of course I'm going to have you on the show. So which one would you like to to dig into first a little bit? Hmm. You know what my favorite chapter is? What? Authenticity. Ah. Mm-hmm. I talk okay. a lot about initiative, but I really love authenticity. Yeah. Well, let's go there then. I do want to say about vulnerability, because we've already kind of talked about initiative, that there's so much focus on romantic love and understanding how important your friends are um, is incredibly I mean, just sitting around that group this past weekend and talking about, you know, how we were 50 years ago and how we've seen each other change and what we consider our strengths now and how those strengths have been um, amplified um, and reflected in our friendships and and how our weaknesses have been, too, that it it was just a great um, 
great thought. But anyway, vulnerability, the second, so initiative, vulnerability, this is my favorite. And then we'll get to authenticity, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability, again, my favorite quote was, the secret way to be consumed by thoughts is to suppress them. Yep. And um, I talk a lot about that in my own work, and I just wanted to mention that you you and I also tend to be thinking alike in that vein. So um, I just thought that perhaps readers who know my work would be especially uh, interested in reading about that. Now, let's talk about authenticity. Why was that your favorite chapter? Because I think we don't always know what authenticity is. I think sometimes we think of authenticity of what we say reflexively or automatically. Mm -hmm. And I argue in that chapter that that's actually often a defense mechanism against what is authentic, right? So you tell me I failed you in some way as a friend. And I think the authentic response is, no, I haven't. You failed me because that's the first thing that comes to mind, right? Sure. But, But that's actually defending against my deeper feelings of shame, guilt, inferiority, right? Fear. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, fear. And so what the first thing that we say is often not the authentic thing. It's the defense mechanism, right? It's defends against that feeling we don't want to feel. And often we engage in these defense mechanisms by puffing out our chest, putting people down, judging people, getting revenge on people, right? Because they protect our feeling that we don't want to feel at the expense of our relationships. So being able to access authenticity is about not being controlled by those defense mechanisms, not being reactive, but instead intentional Mm -hmm. in the ways that you treat other people, like choosing to act in ways that align with your values, that feel like they reflect who you are, Mm -hmm. instead of acting out in ways that are more primal and almost animalistic. So how do you think people can be aware, or especially in the moment, be aware that they're acting out of their defensive mechanisms? What do you mean by that? I would say when you feel triggered, kind of like you have a hot flash, you feel hot all of a sudden, you feel like Mm -hmm. an intense emotional pang, right? Mm-hmm. that's a moment when you might be vulnerable to some of these defense mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes mindfulness. It's it's to not be reactive in those moments. It's almost like when you're hungry, right? Like you could choose to eat or you can choose to just like feel the feeling of hunger, right? Let me feel this triggered feeling. Let me feel this triggered feeling of feeling guilt towards my friend or shame about how I failed my friend. Let me acknowledge that feeling, right? Let me um, feel where it manifests in my body so that I don't then try to put down my friend to try to make myself feel better about this shame or feel better about this guilt. So it takes mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It takes pausing. It takes being able to be self-aware about those moments when we're triggered and we feel a sudden strong emotion, right? so that we can choose a response that best reflects our highest self. And I loved this question in this chapter, what are you most afraid to feel? And I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, well, what are you most afraid to feel? <laughs> and um, I I came up with some answers as far as being afraid of, uh, I think I'm afraid of being not enough I'm afraid of being um, seen as selfish. I'm afraid. I mean, there's several things I'm afraid of. And um, when I, when you really get honest about that, then you're right. Those are the keys to um, not only 
what your own struggles may be, but are cues as to what may trigger you. Yep, exactly. What are you afraid to feel? Um, You know, for me, it was like powerlessness Mm -hmm. and recognizing that because I can't feel powerless, I might struggle with hearing a friend talk about their issues, right, in a very passive way because that triggers my own feelings of powerlessness. So then I'm trying to get them to do something about it. Oh, that's Um, a great example. Yeah, making me a less effective friend because I can't be present with them fully. Or, you know, I think a lot of people, their their feeling is like um, shame, really. I mean, all of that, that one's like so destructive for us. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have these people that act in such grandiose ways and try to be better than people and try to put people down, right. To kind of protect against their own shame that they're not willing to look at. Like people that are secure with themselves don't try to be dominant of other people Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because they don't have to, you know, that dominance is a way of escaping vulnerability. Like if you're dominant, you're not vulnerable. Right. So how can we stop trying to escape our feelings in ways that then damage our relationships because we're escaping through how we treat others when we can instead go internally and acknowledge these feelings and feel these feelings and make a decision that reflects who we are. It's almost like a process of like becoming more of who you are mm-hmm. rather than just like living your life in a very hijacked way. You said authenticity is the opposite of what Dale Carnegie teaches. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Well, yeah. And, you know, I have to acknowledge Dale for what he's contributed to the science of well, uh, friendship in general and building relationships. I think he has a lot of good advice. But the thing is that, you know, things like, I don't know, greeting someone warmly when they enter their room or sharing all this affection with them. They're all great and they do create connection. But the thing is that if they're inauthentic, if you don't actually like people and you're sharing mm-hmm. all this affection toward them, mm-hmm. that inauthenticity is kind of toxic for us. Um, you know, I talk about in the book how it's related to poor mental health when you feel mm-hmm. like you're being inauthentic, how it literally makes you desire cleaning products to feel more clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... So what that suggests is that I think in platonic, I'm trying to get us to do the internal work that we naturally love people more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we naturally feel less threatened and fearful around others. So we can, we can kind of be more in touch with our inner core of love toward others so that we can both be loving towards others in the ways that Dale Carnegie suggests while also doing it in a way that feels authentic for us. Mm. Okay. So, How does one go about doing that? Yeah. So when I think about self-love, there's this theory of self-esteem. And what it says is that your self-esteem is less about how you feel about yourself and more about your gauge of how others feel about you. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. So one of the tips I share in Platonic is to assume that people like you. Because according to the science, when people are told to make this assumption, even when it's not necessarily true, they go into groups and they become friendlier and more warm. Mm -hmm. And it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas other studies show when you fear rejection, you become cold and you become withdrawn. And then you get rejected because you're actually rejecting people. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the internal work, right? It's going into new relationships assuming 
that people like you, assuming the best, because then what naturally flows out of you is friendliness, is warmth, is the types of things that Dale Carnegie wants us to do. But if you're instead feeling the opposite, fearful and distrusting, and then you're sort of like, but yeah, you're a great guy and I really like you, you know, that that's just a form of relationship building that just is very costly when your internal world and the the, the sort of behaviors that you're giving off to others don't necessarily match. I think you even called it manipulative because it was um, being somewhat false with people, you know, acting as if they were, they were, you were very fond of them or something. And really that kind of strength of connection wasn't there. Yeah. Cause inauthenticity, because it's so taxing for us, to me, it can only be sustained for so long. And at some point, if you're in, inauthentic and the, you know, you're in this relationship with someone and they think that you really like them, at some point, you're suddenly going to leak out some of your authentic feelings. Mm-hmm. And that person's going to feel really confused and kind of betrayed. And I want to get to the um, friendship across levels of privilege in a second. But this is reminding me of some of the things that you talked about with productive anger our truest selves aren't revealed during conflict. Often our most triggered selves are. And that's kind of what you're saying now is that, you know, when you, when eventually this conflict might emerge that, or that this unease or dis-ease with one another might emerge, then then they're your triggers. So is that, am I making that connection? You are, you totally are like, what I see from all the research I've read is that we're unlikable because we're afraid and we're fearful. Mm-hmm. And when we are fearful of others, we tend to come off in ways that are mean <laughs> and are crueler, mm-hmm. hostile, withdrawn, cold, mm-hmm. judgmental. But when we feel loved and accepted, we naturally display behaviors that create friendship, warmth, openness, vulnerability love, affection, right? Like I'm just, I'm arguing in platonic that at our core, we know how to make friends. It's about relief, trying to work through some of the fears, some of the baggage, some of the mistrust, some of the, you know, re, uh, you know, the assumptions of rejection, because those are what make us kind of antisocial. But we all, we all, I think, have this inbuilt natural capacity to be loving toward people. And it's just about being able to work with ourselves to access that. Hmm. I love the story you also told about how you teach your class on loneliness and an activity that you have them do. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So that was a class I taught. Um, it was like basic therapy skills. <laughs> That's and right. so mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we would have them share something they liked about another person. And generally what I saw is that people would get very afraid and they'd say, I that was very, why do you think that is? <laughs> well, from the science. Vulnerability? It's, it's vulnerability, yeah. And when when people predict the impact of their affection, they overestimate how awkward they think it'll come off and underestimate how positively people will receive it. So mm. our brain has all these glitches and... <laughs> Yeah, so everybody was like, you know, am I going to come off as clingy or weird? It's vulnerable. And then I'd get them to do it. And then 
I don't know, everything would change in the class because of that one. Everybody felt so much more comfortable, so much more willing to participate, so much more engaged when they felt that someone in the class liked and valued them. Like even now, I teach this class on loneliness. The foundation of my teaching style is that for students to learn well, they need to feel like they belong. They need to feel connected. They need to feel safe, right? Because if they don't, they're never going to participate and they're not going to learn anything from each other. And they're going to have to work through those feelings of rejection and fear and all that's going to come up and get in the way of their ability to learn and take in the material and be open-minded to new ideas. So I try to put connection as core to my teaching process. That reminds me of a thing I've done at the end of some workshops. And I've often wondered, I guess they really can't do it at the beginning. But the thing is, you, I don't know, this was a big thing 20 years ago that people wrote things. Why did they do that? And then they sort of pin them to the back of your sweater or they, I don't know, that you couldn't see what they were writing. You could only see what you were writing and stick it on to other people, maybe post-it notes. I don't know what it was. But so at the end, you know, you could take them off or ask somebody else to take them off your back and and then read them and walk out of that seminar knowing those things about you and or oh. feeling that that's the way other people looked at you and it, it it did the same thing except i kind of wondered why don't we do this at the beginning of the <laughs> workshop <laughs> but maybe people don't have enough information about one another to know what to say i don't know um you talked about making both what you termed interracial friendships, but also you call them friendships across levels of privilege. Yep. And that there were three very important factors that needed to occur to do that. Yeah. Because obviously I hope that our culture is moving toward more and more interracial friendships and, but they have their pitfalls. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you know, we see in, the research that people are so much more likely to be friends with people of their race. Mm-hmm. And so the history lives within us. So I kind of talk about how do we create intimacy with across racial groups. And I think I specifically focused on how specifically for the person that is from the more disadvantaged group, how do you find relationships with people that are from the more privileged group that feel safe for you? And these are particularly close and intimate relationships. And I talk about these three V's, which is vetting, finding people that do believe in the worth of your group and aren't, you know, prejudiced against your group and are aligned with valuing your group in society. And then vulnerability, which means bringing your full self to the friendship, being able to talk about your experiences related to your identity. Uh, that marginalized identity, even if they might not share it. And then voice, which is super important, which means that when ruptures do occur, because you have different identity from your friends, you're able to bring it up. Because if you don't, that's, I think, one of the reasons why interracial friendships are more fragile, that there can be these differences in perspective and experiences, and there's no talking about it. And I get it because it's hard. It's very vulnerable to bring up if someone doesn't share your identity, an issue that happened related to your identity. And I talk about in that chapter, my own experience of having a friend who was white introduce me to her friends as a diversity hire at my institution. And how, yeah, ouch, it hurt. Mm -mm. And how, when that happened and I, I, 
I think in general, when these racial triggers happen or really any, any, you know, trigger related to having a disadvantaged identity, it feels cumulative. It's like your head goes through all the experiences you've had wherein people have assumed you were inferior because they're all connected. They're not isolated. They're all reflected by underlying societal dynamics that looks at certain groups as less confident, less intelligent, less fully human. So I talk about how I went through that time in middle school when my middle school teacher told me I wouldn't get into the competitive high school that I got into or getting into Ivy League schools in high school and having my classmates demand that they then get in because they were assuming that they were smarter than me. And um, just all these experiences I've had where people have assumed that I was less competent or less intelligent, that all kind of came out in that moment. And that's why there could be something that seems to you like this was just a small passing comment. Like, why Mm -hmm. are you taking it so seriously? Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why, because when it's not a passing comment, when it's cumulative and you've continued to have this commentary throughout your life and it's all related to Mm -hmm. an underlying social reality that you have to face that people don't perceive you as credible or as smart as you are. Um, And so that what healed our friendship was, me being able to voice it and say, you know, I'm not sure you noticed this, but I did feel really hurt that you referred to me that way because I've worked really hard to to get to the position that I'm in. And we're able to have that conversation and we're still friends. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You called that the broken windows theory or an analogy that if there's a broken window in a home that it's more likely to be the target of more crime. And so you don't want to see a broken window or a broken part of the relationship and not address it so that it won't just Mm -hmm. deteriorate. Exactly. What about if the desire goes the other way? If the desire goes from the more privileged person to the less privileged person? What sort of desire? Meaning that I have someone who is black or I have someone who is Asian American or or Hispanic or something, and that I want to befriend them, that I am I'm really very interested in, in establishing a friendship. I have this yeah. in my practice. I've had uh, minority patients, and we always talk. Usually I bring it up. I almost always bring it up that, you know, obviously we have this difference in race. And that's going to make a huge difference in our experience. And how are we going to talk about those differences? Because I may misunderstand something because of I I can't, you know, I can't have the same perspective you do. And so how are you going to let me know when I'm missing something? Um, Yeah. And how do we talk about it so that you educate me about that? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So I would say, you know, if you're from a more privileged identity, wanting to make friends with someone who does not have that same identity as you do, what we tend to see, this this is the breakdown that happens, that both people from both groups assume the other will reject them in different ways. Mm -hmm. So white people tend to assume, oh, maybe if I interact, they'll you know, think something about me is prejudiced. So I'm kind of nervous to go into this Mm -hmm. interaction. Mm -hmm. And black people are like, or people of color might be like, oh, I'm scared if I get into this interaction that I might experience prejudice, right? And so there tends to be anxieties on both sides. And in general, when I talk about the importance of like assuming people like you and fears of rejection and how those manifest, 
these anxieties actually manifest as more rejecting behavior. Like if you're a white person has all this anxiety about being perceived as prejudiced, then you're kind of withdrawing and Mm -hmm, you're, mm -hmm. you are coming off as kind of prejudiced. Um, And then for, for people of color who are, you know, assuming that they might experience prejudice, it can be hard to create relationships with white people. Sort of the self-fulfilling prophecies. The self-fulfilling prophecy. And again, I think, you know, I talk about in the book how people of color struggle with feeling like they can be authentic with people from privileged groups because we know from the research that even neutral expressions are perceived as angry um, from black people. And so there is this real reality that it, in some ways, privileges access to authenticity because people are receiving you as you're intended, not through the lens of these stereotypes, like you're fully humanized in some ways. So I kind of wanted to acknowledge that to make sure that we know that in some ways we can't fully equate race making friends across difference when you're coming from the position of a privileged person rather than compared to someone coming from um, the position of a person as a more disadvantaged identity. There's sort of different fears there and different realities there too. It's important to, first of all, assume that they might like you and be open to it. Maintaining what's called like in the internal desire to work on your prejudice. So the people that have the desire to come off as if they're not prejudiced, mm-hmm. they're they're not creating those relationships. The people that have the internal desire to actually work on their prejudice they're able to build those relationships a lot better because then it's not about them protecting their ego and, you know, having to be very, maybe being more defensive when these issues are brought up because they they feel like they need to appear a certain way for their reputation. It's this internal desire instead to work with your own prejudice rather than just to be perceived that way that Mm -hmm. tends to portend more positive outcomes for white people engaging across racial differences. I think that's very important advice <laughs> and, again, one that I hope that people will be interested in adding to their own lives because we are a growing, increasingly diverse culture. And so it's so important to try to have those kinds of relationships that are just very sincere and, as you say, vulnerable as well. I want to touch on one other thing. If you have time, do you have time? Yes. Okay. Is the section on generosity. So many people think being generous is being self-sacrificial. And you use the giving tree story as sort of the basis of a lot of your um, observations. Um, So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, I kind of pulled from an article from the psychologist Adam Grant, where he talks about Mm -hmm. this giving tree model of generosity, where the tree is just willing to give apples and then give branches and then give its its very bark and stump to this boy that keeps asking, you know, I need to build this boat. I need to these apples to eat. And the tree just keeps giving and giving until the tree is literally a stump. Mm-hmm. And the boy comes back because he needs somewhere to sit. So he's sitting on the stump of the poor tree. <laughs> and I think a lot of us, particularly women, have been taught that generosity is martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And the research does not reveal that. People that are unmitigated givers, who like giving tree givers, who give, give, and give, don't consider themselves. Their mental health is tarnished because of that. Um, their relationships aren't as good as people that give and have boundaries. 
and because they they struggle with resentment they'll give and then they'll withdraw because they're mad that they gave and that's not really the other person's fault also we see from the research that when you give because you feel obligated to people actually feel uncomfortable receiving it mm-hmm they would almost prefer that you didn't give than giving out of a sense of obligation and then later telling them, I gave you this. Why don't you give me that? I should have looked this up. I did a, a podcast quite a while ago now, that, but it, it, there was a newer uh, subcategory of narcissism that was called, I want to say communal narcissism. Is it vulnerable that? narcissism? Maybe, but it is the the person who does and does and does and needs to be seen as that. Exactly. Um, it needs to be seen as the person who does, but, but belies that, says, oh, no, I don't want any attention. You know, I'd love to, this is who I am. I love doing this, but covertly, really, secretly, really needs that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is such an interesting um idea that like you said when you get down to you're finally just the the stump of a tree and, <laughs> and you're still just being well you know the boy hasn't watered it he hasn't you know taken pictures of it and put it on its instagram you know <laughs> none of that has happened but a great tree i have um you know it's 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 all it's all about the boy and um, so it's not selflessness. There's a you use this term several times in the book, but a mutuality of giving that mm-hmm. I can far more accept as a friend when I'm given to. If I'm also, um, I'll even say expected to give. It's a part of our understanding with one another that we're both going to give and we're both going to receive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, these unmitigated givers that give and they're self-sacrificing their other issue is that they give to earn love which means they'll give to people that don't love them to get that love back oh interesting whereas if you're engaged in mutuality where both people are thinking about the needs of both parties you're giving to people that already love you to show them that you love them Mm -hmm. so when you're giving to people to earn love you're inviting unhealthy relationships because you are trying to establish more of a relationship with someone that is not actively reciprocating with you. You know, I want to make the point, we're not talking about when there's a flood, you're the first person who works to get food together and shelter together and for the people who need it. We're talking about friendship here. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with giving to people who cannot give back to you due to their circumstances at the time or whatever. That's not what we're referring to. We're referring to friendship. The other thing I want to say about the book, though, um, is that Every chapter has takeaways. And and one of the things that as a therapist, I've I noticed that you did a fantastic job of is actually, for example, in the generosity chapter in or in the uh, initiative chapter, you gave people specific things that they could do to to take initiative to be generous, because you know, along the along the years that I've been a therapist, people will look at me and say, I don't really know how to be a friend. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you know, pick up something that they like in the store and next time, you know, and, and take it by their desk at work. Um, you know, notice that they that they like a certain flower. And if you're in the florist, then pick up a rose or a, a daisy or whatever they like. 
writing them a note. Let's talk about this in tangible terms. And I loved that about your book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. No, I'm, I'm, I mean it. And all the self-work listeners know I mean it, too, because it's uh, we can talk about concepts all day long and we can talk about why you are the way you are. But if you really want to make changes in yourself, then sometimes you don't know how. And it helps exactly. to have sort of a roadmap for that. Yeah. To take away something concrete. I'm right. all about that. Let's use this research so that we can decide on something strategic and concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what else are you working on? I mean, are and how can people get in touch with you yeah. and if they have questions? And first, I want to say this was just such a lovely interview. And oh, um, thank you. I just loved your questions and I like your presence. You're very present. Well, I thank you. That's nice. Yeah. So, Platonic How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends is found wherever books are sold. It recently <laughs> became a New York Times bestseller. Super oh, exciting. It, it did. I, yeah. I knew it did. I told my um I told my assistant I want to have I want to have this author on because this is going to be a bestseller. I just knew it. <laughs> Thank you. Knew it. <laughs> Thank you. Other than that, people can find me on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O, where I share research back tips on how to make friends. And at my website, drmarissagfranco.com, I have a quiz you can take that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend. Ooh, I'm going to go take that. <laughs> yeah. And there you can also reach out if you want me to come speak at your company on how to find connection or how to find belonging. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And by the way, I don't want this interview to end without me saying it's it's such a feat to have a New York Times bestselling book. <laughs> Believe me. I mean, that is a coup. So good. for. And I know that, you know, I don't think you sat down to think I need to write a bestselling New York Times bestseller, mm -mm. but I darn you did it. So Thank good for you. you. So good for you. I, I receive all the support you've given me. Good. I'm glad because it's there. <laughs> um, well, thank you for being on Self Work. And um, let us know if you're about to do something else. We'll have you back on. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you for being here today. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can check me out on Instagram. I love to post there. And of course, my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, is available. Thank you once again for being here. Please take very, very good care of you, the people you love, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.